And now, Lord, as we come to Your Word, we thank You for Your Word and we remember that Your Word is able to do Your work by the power of the Spirit when we hear it. So today we ask, O Lord, that You would help us to be more than hearers, but help us to be doers. And we ask, O Lord, that You would prevent us, or if necessary, save us from low and inadequate views of who You are. Teach us, O Lord, to have low views of ourselves, but the highest possible view of You in order that we may find peace in knowing who You are, knowing what You're capable of, knowing that Your plans and Your purposes will never be thwarted. Teach us, O Lord, that even if Your judgment should be upon our nation, there is hope for Your people because of Your faithfulness. So we pray, O Lord, show us our need for Christ draw our hearts more fully to Him and grow us in His likeness as we study Your Word for His glory. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Ezekiel. We will be in Ezekiel chapter 1 today. And if you're wondering where Ezekiel is, it's uh, right after... Uh, Lamentations, which is right after Jeremiah, uh, these were all written in roughly the same time frame. They were written while the Israelites were in exile. Uh, Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel were all contemporaries of one another, so it's no surprise that we find these books very close to one another. And Lamentations being in there, it fits because if you're in exile, you're doing a lot of lamenting. So uh, it's right after Lamentations, which is right after Jeremiah. If you're just flipping through your Bible, you'll see Jeremiah probably because it's a huge book. Uh, It's 50-something chapters, 51 chapters. So uh, we will be looking at Ezekiel chapter 1 today. I was asked yesterday uh, who my favorite prophet of the Bible is, and my answer is Ezekiel. Um, For a lot of reasons, uh, I've always found the book of Ezekiel to be fascinating. It's always been uh, one of my favorite books of the Bible, just in terms of the imagery that we find in that book. It's, uh, it's far more vivid than the imagery in the other uh, prophets. Um, and also the fact that this book is about finding hope uh, in a time when the nation is being judged. So it stands out from uh, many of the other books written by prophets because of the amount of very lively, very animated uh, visions and imagery. The first chapter, in fact, uh, gets right out of the gate sprinting with one of the most glorious, one of the most astounding, one of the most awesome, and maybe even perhaps one of the most frightening encounters that anyone has with God in all of Scripture. But the book begins with the prophet Ezekiel in a situation that would have caused most people to wonder where God is and why God wasn't doing anything to fix the situation at hand. Maybe that's something that Ezekiel was wondering. Maybe it's something that you have wondered regarding a situation or regarding a circumstance that you've faced in life as well. See, Ezekiel was one of 
the Israelite exiles. He'd been taken into captivity by the Babylonians and he was taken far, far away from home. And not only far away from home, but far away from the city that was most loved by the Jews, which was Jerusalem. The book of 2 Kings in the 24th chapter tells us that God purposefully raised up King Nebuchadnezzar to invade and to defeat Israel as a means of disciplining Israel. 2 Kings 24.9 says that the king of Israel, Jehoiakim, did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. And then in the next verse we read, At that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem and the city came under siege. And with only a few verses, we read in verse 14 that King Nebuchadnezzar led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and all the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And Ezekiel was among those 10,000 who were taken into captivity. He was a contemporary of the prophet Daniel. Uh, Daniel became an exile around the year 605 B.C. And it's estimated that, um, that uh, Ezekiel became an exile within about the next 10 or so years. So somewhere around 595 to 597 uh, B.C. Uh, as the book begins, as uh, the book of Ezekiel begins, he's been in exile for probably about five years is what uh, the, the most common estimate is. It's important for us to know what Ezekiel's name means. Like with all the prophets, his name has real significance in what he writes. The name Ezekiel means God strengthens or strengthened by God. You're going to want to hold on to that because that was exactly what Ezekiel and his fellow exiles were in need of. And that is exactly what God will provide. So the book of Ezekiel doesn't start in a place of strength. It starts in a very low place, a place of weakness, not strength. God's people are in exile But by the end of the first chapter, we're going to see that Ezekiel's attitude toward his circumstances has completely turned around 180 degrees. It starts with a sense of hopelessness and despair as God's people are being disciplined for their idolatry, for their refusal to remain faithful to God. But the chapter ends with this great sense of optimism and hope. So the point of this first chapter is that God does discipline His children, but even when He does, we can be sure that He will neither abandon them nor forsake them. His unchanging nature assures us that His love for His people, even when they sin greatly, can never be diminished. So there are some events that are so etched in our minds that you can remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when that 
event happened. Uh, For many of us, we remember exactly where we were when we first got news of what was happening on 9-11. For others, maybe uh, it was the assassination of JFK. Uh, For those of you who are younger, um, you know, maybe it was the earthquake in Japan in 2011, or, or who knows, maybe it was even the Chicago Cubs finally winning a World Series in 2016. But for Ezekiel, That's what this event in chapter 1 was. It was an event like this. His first encounter with God, in which he was given this spectacular vision of God, was one that he would never forget. And just like we recall all the significant uh, details around significant events, Ezekiel begins his book by recalling the exact day and the exact place that he was when God first appeared to him. So we'll start by looking at verses 1 to 3. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 say this, Now it came about in the thirtieth year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Shabar among the exiles, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Shabar. And there the hand of the Lord came upon him. So this is the setting. This sets the context for this book. What's interesting is that the first word is now. The actual Hebrew word that's there is and. So what this represents, what that represents is that this is a continuation of God's work. That God hasn't given up on Israel, that he's continuing to do something. Ezekiel says that this vision happened in the 30th year. Now there is some degree of speculation and uncertainty about what that uh, number, what that date uh, specifically signifies, but most scholars and most commentators agree that this is probably a reference to Ezekiel's 30th birthday. Now, you might wonder, uh, okay, you know, happy birthday, Ezekiel, but what's the significance of 30 years? And the answer is that the 30th birthday was when a man would be inducted into the priesthood, if that's what he was uh, to do. Uh, So the 30th birthday of Ezekiel was when he was supposed to be inducted into the priesthood at the temple all the way back in Jerusalem. How's that for happy birthday? Ezekiel, like anyone who was going to enter the priesthood in the temple, would have spent his entire life preparing for this day that he's telling us about right here. He would have been looking forward to this day for decades. He would have spent years studying. He would have spent years learning and preparing for this very day. But as an exile... He was not only far away from home, but he was impossibly far away from the temple in Jerusalem. You can probably imagine how incredibly disappointed, how incredibly discouraged Ezekiel was as the dawning of this day rolled around. But rather than being a day of realizing a lifelong dream, it would have felt like just another day of living in captivity in Babylon. The idea of ever, ever assuming the role of the priesthood would have felt impossible on this day. 
As Ezekiel sat down by the Shabar River, his mind was probably filled with all kinds of could have been, would have been, should have been scenarios for that day. But what ended up happening on this day was something that Ezekiel not only couldn't have anticipated or expected, it's also something that he could not have prepared for if he had a million years or a million lifetimes to prepare for it. He was called, he was appointed to a higher office than even the priesthood. God appointed him on this day as a prophet. See, prophets, nobody aspired to be a prophet. Nobody ever asked to become a prophet. And as you study through Ezekiel's book, you'll understand why. Some of the things that the prophets were called to do and to say were incredibly weird or awkward uh, and resulted in the prophets being social outcasts. But this was something that God had to appoint a person to do on the basis of God's own sovereign grace and God's own sovereign authority. Nobody asked to become a prophet. Nobody aspired to it. And yet, Ezekiel gets appointed as a prophet on this day. Ezekiel tells us that it was on this day, on the fifth day of the fourth month, I can't believe he left out the minutes and the seconds, can you? That on that day, he says, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. One of the things that we see here is he's telling us what he's going to see. So there's no question about what he is about to see. He sees visions of God. But one of the other things that we see here is that Ezekiel is going to be in almost a frenzied mode as he writes this. In fact, he maybe even got a little bit ahead of himself here, even in verse 1, where he forgot to identify himself. He he does it with a kind of a sense of, oops, uh, yeah, by the way, I'm Ezekiel in verse 3. But it's not that Ezekiel is the one who opened up the heavens. Rather, the heavens were opened for him to see a vision of God. Ezekiel himself is actually passive here. God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one who is taking initiative, who's taking action. God is the one who allows Ezekiel to see what the eye normally cannot see. So Ezekiel doesn't only see the heavens opened up, but he tells us in verse 3 that it was there the hand of the Lord came upon him. This is another way of saying that when this happened, God began to use Ezekiel as a prophet to announce and accomplish His sovereign purposes. On a day when Ezekiel should have been joyously celebrating, we can be sure that instead he was... Lamenting. Lamenting Israel's unfaithfulness. Lamenting the sin of Israel and her leaders that resulted in them being disciplined as exiles. Lamenting Israel's weaknesses. Maybe he was even lamenting his own personal weaknesses. But God strengthens. God strengthens. That's what Ezekiel's name means. And It's true. That's what this book is about. And yet, God doesn't always strengthen in the ways that we would imagine. Often, He strengthens a man by disciplining him. Because discipline humbles us. And humility 
is a sign of strength. In the same way that a bone uh, that's broken will heal and become stronger at the point where it was broken, one of the ways that God strengthens His people is by disciplining them. By breaking them from the sin that they love. By breaking them from the idols they love and follow and worship. That wasn't just an issue that Israel faced, by the way. No, that's an issue that you and I face today. For the Christian who finds himself wondering, for whatever reason, under whatever circumstance, where is God? And why isn't God doing something to remedy my situation? It's good to remember that if God is with you and for you, who is going to stand against you? What is going to stand against God's purposes being accomplished in your life? Even if God should allow us to be weakened, will not His grace be sufficient for us in our weakness? His Word promises it will be. Ezekiel, like his fellow exiles, needed something. Specifically, what he needed was a higher, greater, bigger understanding of who God is. That was the remedy for the despair that they would have been feeling. It would have been difficult, if not impossible, for them to have felt any kind of sense of joy or peace in the midst of their situation as long as they had a low view of God. Not only were they far away from God geographically, but they were also, as a people, far away from God spiritually. So even if they could go home, even if they could go back to Jerusalem and be geographically close to where they imagined God to be or felt like God was, they would still be spiritually far away from Him. And further, the temple was about to be destroyed in the Babylonian invasion. That's what happens in chapter 10 of Ezekiel. But even if the temple is destroyed, even if Jerusalem is burned to the ground, God is sovereign. And God was still in control here. In fact, He was sovereign over every detail of their circumstances as exiles. Now let's think biblically about this. If a tragedy like being taken into exile is just something that happens accidentally, if it's just a random event, then the people would have every reason to feel absolutely hopeless. But if tragedy is not random... If it's not just accidental, if it's actually ordained and even orchestrated for a purpose by God in His sovereign decree, then there is always hope. God's everlasting covenant love. We've seen it over and over again in the Psalms. His hesed is the foundation for hope even when we're in the midst of the worst possible circumstances in life. God loves His people enough to discipline them, not for the purpose of punishing them, but for the purpose of strengthening them. Strengthening and growing our faith. But even when He does discipline His children, we can be sure that He'll be with them in the midst of that discipline. That He will not forsake or abandon His children. His unchanging nature, His immutability is what theologians call it assures us that His love for His people, even when they sin, can never 
be changed or diminished. What Ezekiel would learn is something that we also must learn and keep in mind, particularly when God disciplines us. And that is that God is faithful, gracious, and compassionate, but He doesn't take too kindly to the proud. James tells us God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Indeed, it's only the humble who will find it to be true that God strengthens. And so God has had to discipline His people here in order that He may strengthen them, teaching them to rely not on their own strength, but on a strength that only He can give. If you find yourself ever in a situation that brings you to the point of despair, that brings you to a point where you just feel hopeless, in which the darkness of despair never seems to give way to the light of hope, then you need the same thing that Ezekiel and his fellow exiles needed. You need a higher view of God. For the exiles, they felt like they were just banished from God's presence, being unable to worship Him at the temple in Jerusalem. In their minds, surely God wouldn't work in a place like Babylon, would He? What would prevent them from thinking that God could do amazing things, continue His work, even while they're in Babylon? A low view of God could and would. But a high view of God, which is the view of God that we all need. It's a biblical view of God in which the exiles certainly needed at this point if they were going to find hope. A high view of God would remind them that God can't be contained within the walls of a temple. And even beyond that, that there is no place on earth that is so desperately dark or desperately wicked that God cannot raise up instruments of righteousness in that place to accomplish His purposes and to shine light. In the darkest possible circumstances of life, God can always shine light. Do you need to be reminded of that? If so, you need a chapter like Ezekiel chapter 1. It's at this point in the text, though, that I kind of proverbially pull the car over to the side of the road and I tell you, hey, you want to make sure that you got your seatbelt buckled and and that you're seated securely because what comes next is Ezekiel's vision of God in all of His majestic glory. And this is such a wild and detailed and vivid account that many in our day and age have actually speculated uh, that Ezekiel didn't actually have a vision of God, but that he seems to have encountered a UFO with aliens from outer space, uh, which is just one of the things that has made studying this chapter so much fun. No, this is not a case of Ezekiel running into aliens. Uh, It's not an encounter uh, that, that Ezekiel has with Um, you know, anything that uh, science fiction might come up with or natural man might come up with. No, this is a vision of God. This is an encounter with God that Ezekiel will tell us about. And it was this encounter, it was this vision of God that's recorded in the first chapter that completely changed Ezekiel's outlook on life. But that had to start with him recovering a high view of God. The message that would be given to Ezekiel would be one of judgment upon God's people, upon the nation of Israel, in which the way forward was not to go back to the way things were, which is always the way people are inclined to think, but it was nevertheless 
one of great hope, as Ezekiel would call God's people back to faithfulness in God. And therefore, even if the nation should be punished, God's people could rejoice in the hope that they have in God. So, the message would be judgmental. It would be harsh. But God would be seen as faithful. He would be proven to be faithful. The time of exile would end eventually, and there would be life again from the dead, but not because God's people deserved it, but because God is merciful and faithful to His promises and His people. Until that happened, though, Israel was to find hope in God's promises of restoration in the future. One commentator notes that, quote, the biblical image of life in exile has actually never been more timely than it is today, for we live in a time in which people are experiencing a growing sense of alienation from the world around them, end quote. Can you relate to that? I know I sure can. Perhaps you can relate to that as you see the problems and the woes in our country. The solution is the same for you as it was for them. Find hope in God's promises. Cling to those. He has neither abandoned nor forsaken His people, just as He neither abandoned nor forsook the exiles in Babylon. Let's continue looking at verses 4-14. to Ezekiel says, As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Within it there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and their feet were like a calf's hoof, and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. In the midst of Of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright, and lightning was flashing from the fire, and the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. Now there are two things, two two themes, two two observations that you can make about just those verses right there uh, that are really front and center. Uh, those two themes would be motion, uh, they're moving all over the place, and judgment. Now we're familiar with 
Isaiah's great vision of God that we read about in Isaiah chapter 6 where things in that vision are very settled. Things in that vision are very stationary. Uh, Though earth was filled with uncertainty and was shaking with the cultural waves here and there, Isaiah's vision reminded us that heaven's throne is never shaken or stirred. Isaiah saw the Lord seated in His temple But Ezekiel's vision is very different. Ezekiel's vision is where he sees a lot of movement. Things are not settled. He sees the Lord in the midst of a raging storm wind, is what he calls it. The velocity of this storm is moving very quickly, and that sends the message that God Himself is moving and living and active and working to accomplish his purposes, and nothing can stop him from moving forward. Nothing can stop him, nothing can thwart his plans from being accomplished. Now, before we get into too much detail about the significance of the details of these four beings, I think it's worth noting that Ezekiel had a very difficult time describing what he saw on that day. And as such, what we're going to see is that he uses terms such as like or likeness of or appearance of. He uses these words over and over almost every verse throughout this whole chapter as he records this vision. But given that words really do kind of fail to describe what he saw, you might be wondering, well, if he couldn't possibly describe it, why did he even try to describe it? Uh, And I'd say there are probably several answers. Uh, He tried because the vision was a means of uh, validating or authenticating his promotion to the office of prophet. But even more importantly than that, I think, the details of the vision were actually intentionally difficult to describe because they were intended to destroy. They were intended to absolutely smash and obliterate whatever low views of God that Ezekiel and the exiles had and to replace those low views of God with a high view of God. So it's only as the Ezekiel, as Ezekiel and the exiles abandoned their low views of God which also means casting aside their high views of self, it's only then that they're able to experience a sense of renewed joy and peace and hope. So Ezekiel sees a great storm coming from the north. Uh, We have no reason to think that this was not a real storm, a real windstorm that he saw coming toward him. Uh, So it was probably a, a real storm that he saw, Uh, But God only delivered the spiritual significance of what He sees to Ezekiel. He only opens up the heavens for Ezekiel to see God. Uh, This is what we would call a theophany, which is just a fancy word that refers to an appearance by God, a physical appearance uh, by God, by God's intent. Uh, Similar to Moses and the burning bush and how God only allowed Moses to see and to hear what was being spoken. So what's interesting about this vision that Ezekiel has is that it has several distinct similarities to the book of Genesis, uh, the, the narrative from Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now the, the Hebrew word for spirit 
is ruach. It's onomatopoetic, which means it sounds uh, like what it is, kind of like bang or boom or, or pop. Uh, ruach not only gets translated as spirit, though, it also gets translated as wind. In Noah's flood, God sent a wind, a ruach, to dry the waters up. And ruach is the word used here for the wind in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. Ezekiel sees a great cloud that's surrounded by a bright light with fire bursting forth from it continuously. I think it's fair to say that he's probably describing something very similar to lightning, although he uses the word lightning later on, so it might not be exactly like lightning. But in the midst of this great cloud with fire shooting forth continuously, Ezekiel sees something like glowing metal in the midst of a fire. All of these things, all of this imagery of fire and hot metal, these things are all indications not only of the presence of God, but of His awesome power. Just as you would be absolutely out of your mind. You'd be crazy to be flippant or casual when you're handling a piece of metal that was glowing hot from sitting in the embers of a fire. The image of glowing metal here in Ezekiel's vision reminds us that God is holy. It reminds us that God is holy and that He cannot be approached carelessly or flippantly or casually. We're reminded of the burning ember in Isaiah's vision and how the seraphim uh, touched Isaiah's mouth with the ember as a means of purifying his mouth after Isaiah had proclaimed, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And the response was to purify his lips, to make his lips holy with this ember. See, this imagery that looks something like hot metal in the middle of a fire reminds us that there is an extreme danger in approaching a God who is holy. If you don't take God's holiness seriously, it can only, it can only result in very tragic consequences. And that's exactly what had happened with Israel. That's why Ezekiel and so many others had been exiled, because they had taken God's holiness very casually. It wasn't important to them. They certainly were not thinking about it. They hadn't feared God, and they had therefore been very flippant, very casual about His holiness. The image of fire is also an image of wrath. It's an image of judgment. Which is why it's so crazy when these Pentecostal preachers pray for fire to come down on them. You don't want God's judgment. You don't want God's wrath. That's what fire is a picture of. The Israelites had forgotten what God had told them in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, where God said to them, The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And they apparently had forgotten those words. Why would I say that? Why would we think that? Because they were not living in light of those words. So Ezekiel then moves to describing these four living beings who represent throne attendants of God. Now it might seem kind of odd that Ezekiel simply refers to them as living beings. 
instead of angels, especially since later on in the book he will identify them as cherubim. But at this point in the narrative, uh, he seems to be just so frantically overwhelmed that it's almost like he can't think straight. He's just writing things down as fast as he can, and he, he's yeah missing stuff like, oh yeah, those are cherubim, by the way. Who could blame him? Who can blame him? But he does tell us later on what they are. They are cherubim. He describes them as having human form. Interestingly, the Hebrew word that gets translated form is the same word for likeness. As in, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Also from Genesis chapter 1. We can assume that by this, Ezekiel meant that they stood upright when he says that they have human form, that they stood upright, having hands and having faces. Uh, In fact, the next thing he tells us is that each of these beings has four faces and four wings. Uh, With four faces, these angelic cherubim would have been able to see in every direction simultaneously, and the four wings indicate that they're not limited in their movements the way we are. They don't just go forward and backward. No, they're not limited the way that people are. They can fly, they can go forward, they can go backward, they can go wherever they're instructed to go. He tells us their feet were like the hooves of calves. See, a human foot, if you think about it, uh, a human foot is always facing in the direction that we move the smoothest. Uh, But the feet of these angelic beings were ready to move in whichever direction they were instructed to go. They possessed hands under their wings. It's unclear if it's four hands because they have four wings or if it's just two hands under their four wings. It's kind of ambiguous a little bit. But their wings joined to touch one another in an overlapping touch so that what you see is that they're forming kind of a protective square around the throne. The description indicates that whichever direction they moved, they were always facing in that direction. So they didn't need to turn because they'd already be facing whichever way they had to go. Ezekiel then uh, continues describing their four faces. He says that each of them had the face of a man, which is symbolic of them having intelligence. He says, uh, you know, basically by adding this detail, they were sentient beings. They weren't just like inanimate, uh, you know, unthinking beings. They were sentient. They had the face of a lion to the right symbolizing their might. They had the face of a bull or an ox on the left, symbolizing their faithfulness to accomplish whatever task was given to them. And they had the face of an eagle, which represents their swiftness to act as soon as they are instructed to act. All of these qualities, all of these descriptions were consistent, by the way, with the heavenly king whom they served. God has all these attributes as well, only unlike his creatures, he has them to an infinite degree. Ezekiel adds in verse 11, their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. So what he's doing here is clarifying uh, that only two of their wings actually overlapped with the wings of the cherubim to either side of them. The presence of these cherubim also bring us back to the creation account, by the way. When man fell into sin, what happened? Well, he was exiled from the Garden of Eden, and God positioned cherubim 
uh, at the entrance of the garden to prevent anyone from coming in. Uh, We might also recall that their likeness was also placed over the Ark of the Covenant and on the curtains of the tabernacle. Uh, But these cherubim, these angelic beings, were guardians of God's holy presence. As such, their movement was not autonomous. They were not self-governing beings. Rather, Ezekiel tells us, wherever the Spirit, the Ruach, was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. The Spirit here is a reference to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel concludes this description of the cherubim, noting that they were like two things. He says that they were like burning coals of fire, and that they were like the appearance of torches, and that they were fast as lightning. As soon as the Spirit directed that the throne be moved, the beings, these cherubim, complied without turning. This is to show us that there is no crookedness in their works. Now let me ask you this. Something for us to think about. If these beings who are just kind of frightening, they sound kind of scary, uh, they're powerful, they are awe-inspiring, and if they are so glorious and so able to do things that we can't and yet are so quick to obey the direction of the Spirit, then who are we as far less capable beings than they are to delay in following the Spirit of God. It's an important part of the symbolism here. Important for the exiles and important for you and me even today to consider. But as fascinating as these cherubim may have been, and they are pretty fascinating. It's pretty unique, the description. As fascinating as they might be, they are not the message. And they are not even the messengers. So now Ezekiel looks beyond these cherubim uh, as he continues in verses 15 to 21. He says, Now I looked at the living beings. Now, as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each of the four of them. The appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling barrel, and all four of them had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. Whenever they moved, they moved in any of their four directions without turning as they moved. As for their rims, they were lofty and awesome, and the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. Whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them, and whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. And the wheels rose close beside them, for the Spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Whenever those went, these went. And whenever those stood still, these stood still. But whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close beside them, for the Spirit of the living beings was in the wheels." 
Now obviously as we continue here, it's pretty clear that Ezekiel is still finding that words absolutely fail to describe exactly what he's seeing as he continues to describe these four wheels that have wheels within the wheels which constitute the support of an intricate and a very awesome heavenly chariot that moves in whatever direction the Spirit of God directs it to go. Now keep in mind that the characteristics and the attributes of both the cherubim and the chariot that they accompany are all filled with imagery that ultimately points us to and reminds us of God's glorious attributes. The wheels inside of the wheels represent God's limitless mobility. He can go wherever He wants. What it probably looked like was kind of a wheel going this way and a wheel going this way so that He could go this way or it could go this way without having to turn. The fact that this chariot is able to move in any direction reminds us that God Himself is not limited in terms of where He can go. We're the ones who are limited. We're limited in, in which direction we can go. There are no chariots that, you know, that have a wheel inside of a wheel that can move sideways and all those things. No, this chariot goes wherever the Spirit of God wants to go. The rims of these wheels, Ezekiel tells us, are covered with eyes. Now, if you've ever seen an artistic sketch of, uh, of this chapter, of this scene, this is one of the details which has, I think, probably led people to really wonder exactly what it was that uh, Ezekiel was actually seeing. Uh, was it aliens? Um, was he just having a strange dream? Maybe he uh, was having hallucinations? No. The eyes on the wheels are a reminder of the fact that the one who sits on heaven's throne, sees it all and knows it all. Nothing in all of creation escapes His attention. He doesn't get distracted as He's going in one direction. He sees everything that's going on on the sides and behind. He sees and knows it all. He's not only all-knowing, but uh, as represented by the eyes on the wheels, but he's also omnipresent as represented by the unlimited mobility of this chariot. It is a wonderful and blessed thing to remember that God is not only all-knowing, but that He is all-present. It's a blessed thing to remember in our cultural context, and it is a blessed thing for an exile to also be reminded of. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. The Israelites, you see, were living in a way that demonstrated that, well, maybe they didn't care all that much about the fact that God was all-knowing and all-present. They certainly weren't living like they cared about it but they should have been. And we should be too. And the exiles certainly needed to be reminded of these things now if they were to find hope. And you and I also need to know and live our lives in the light of the truth that God alone rules over the world. He knows it all. He sees it all. And there's not a single 
inch of all of creation. There's not a single aspect of your life or of my life or of anybody's life that is hidden from God. He sees it all and He knows it all. The prophet Jonah, you might remember, had to learn the hard way that when God calls us to something, there is no place to run and there is no place to hide. The exiles had to learn that lesson. And the only proper response to realizing or remembering these truths is to live our lives like an open book before Him. When you look at the world, when you look at the nations raging and plotting against God, it might look and feel like the earth is shaking and just ready to fall apart at the seams at times. It might seem like God isn't aware of what's going on. It might even seem like He doesn't care about what's going on. But the message that all of this in the vision sends is that He is aware. That He does care. And just as the wheels move in perfect harmony with God's sovereign will, so does the earth. And so does everything else in all of creation. Nothing in all of the universe, nothing in all of creation, from the greatest things down to the smallest things, nanoparticles, nothing happens apart from God's sovereign decree. Nothing. As our confession says, God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass including being taken into exile oh yeah including being taken taken into exile what a blessed thing what a wonderful thing for an exile to not only remember but to live by and what a blessed thing for us to live by today as well. This chapter ends with a vision of God that goes beyond the cherubim and goes beyond the the chariot and its wheels to a vision of divine glory that we read about in uh, verses 22 to 28. Ezekiel continues saying, Now over the heads of the living beings there was something like an expanse like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other. Each one also had two wings covering its body and uh, on the one side and on the other. I also heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings." And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire, and there was a radiance around him. 
As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. So above the heads of these cherubim was something like an expanse. Or, depending on your translation, maybe it says a firmament. Uh, Note, once again, the imagery from Genesis. And this resembled the glimmer of crystal. The NASB says that this vision of this crystal-like structure was awesome. But the Hebrew word that's used here doesn't indicate something awesome like, uh, like a surfer would say, dude, that wave was so awesome. You know, it's not like that kind of awesome. No, this is an awesome meaning this is to be feared, if not completely dreaded. Maybe this is why Ezekiel lowers his gaze back down from the expanse to the cherubim. In verse 23, he starts to describe it and then he looks back down at the cherubim. It's at this point that Ezekiel tells us of the sound that they were making. He says, I also heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters. Now, given how much imagery we have seen uh, from Genesis, where do we learn about water in Genesis? It's a reminder of the flood. It's a reminder of God's judgment which was exercised when God covered the face of the earth in water, saving only Noah and his family from an outpouring of His holy wrath. Ezekiel continues, noting that the sound was like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult like the sound of an army camp. Maybe it was like the sound of of rolling thunder. Whatever the case may be, we can see that the the words are still proving to be completely inadequate. Ezekiel can't fully explain exactly what he has seen because he still is using words such as like or appearance like to describe what he's seeing and hearing. But notice that Ezekiel doesn't use the word like when it comes to verse 25. Here he stops using that word. He's not saying that this is similar to. No, look at what he says. He tells us that he hears a voice. It wasn't like a voice. It was a voice. And what does it say? He doesn't tell us. We don't know. The content of what was spoken wasn't for Ezekiel and apparently wasn't for the exiles. Rather, it seems that it was perhaps for the cherubim who silenced their wings whenever the occupant of the throne spoke. This was a voice that must be heard. This was a voice that should not be interrupted. This was a voice that must be heeded and should never be distracted from by other noises. And this brings us to the highest point of the vision. Ezekiel once again raises his eyes up. He lifts his eyes up again and he sees something like a throne above the cherubim. And on that throne, he tells us, he sees a figure with the appearance of a man. This man was upon the throne, which tells us that this man was a king. A king who had 
a brilliant rainbow-like radiance around him. Who is this king? It's the king of kings. It's the Lord of the universe. This king appears here with imagery like glowing metal representing judgment, reminding us again that God's wrath, God's judgment is very real. The whole vision reminds us that God is never, ever to be taken lightly or casually or flippantly. He is not tame. He's not bound as we would in our fallen condition especially imagine Him to be. He is sovereign. He is almighty. And He's worthy as such of our worship and our unquestioning obedience. That's why Ezekiel, like so many other biblical authors, falls flat on his face. Do you remember what happened when John fell flat on his face in his vision in Revelation? One of the angels says to him, get up, I'm a creature just like you. Don't fall before me. No, only God is worthy of falling flat on your face before. But the imagery isn't only of God's wrath and judgment. Ezekiel tells us that as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Ezekiel, like the other exiles, they were all being disciplined by God. But they were not being disciplined without hope. The rainbow is a reminder that God is faithful to His covenants and promises. Again, imagery from Genesis. Regardless of the severity of God's just and, and holy discipline, regardless of His judgments, the rainbow was a reminder that God is faithfully merciful. That God loves us with a loving kindness that cannot be thwarted or changed. And that in the end, When God draws near to His people, nothing, nothing in all of creation can separate Him from His people. Just like the Apostle Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, where he says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who is this King who appears on His throne in human likeness? Who is this King that Ezekiel sees toward the end of chapter 1 here? John Calvin once noted that, quote, whenever God appeared in human form, An obscure glimpse was given of that mystery which was at last made manifest in the person of Christ. Neither God the Father nor the Spirit was ever manifest in the flesh, but God was manifest in the flesh when Christ appeared to us and the fullness of the divinity dwells in Him. Now you'll remember that back at the beginning of the chapter, Ezekiel told us that he received a vision of God. So who is it that he sees? And our answer has to come in light of what John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has 
explained him. That's referring to whom? To Jesus. This king is none other than Jesus Christ. This whole chapter reminds us that even in the state of exile that Ezekiel and his fellow exiles were in, God is still higher. God is still greater than we can ever even begin to imagine. And that He is just and that He is holy, but that He is also faithful to His covenant promises. He judges in holy, righteous wrath, yes, but He also graciously forgives. And His ability to forgive is never limited. It's never limited. He loves to forgive more than we love to sin. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. So loving is this high and majestic King of Kings that about 600 years after Ezekiel wrote this, this king stepped down from that throne. He took on flesh. And he lived a perfectly righteous, sinless life. And yet he was crushed by our transgressions. For our transgressions in our place. Our sins were credited to Him and His perfect righteousness was credited to us so that we could stand before God in Christ's own perfect righteousness, forgiven and cleansed of sin. He died, but He rose again on the third day. He ascended into heaven, but He will come again and His glory will once again be seen when every eye will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Will it look like something like Ezekiel saw here? Maybe. If you have not believed in Christ, you must know that you cannot avoid this day of terrible and sure judgment that is coming. It gets closer with every passing day. You can neither run nor hide. And yet He invites you to come to Him in faith if today you hear His voice. Don't harden your heart. If you have believed in Him, you can be confident that even in the most difficult circumstances, even the most difficult circumstances, even the most impossible situations of life, God has a purpose And He will neither abandon you nor forsake you. Knowing God in this way, having a high view of Him, is what changed everything for Ezekiel and his perspective. It strengthened him. And it will strengthen you too. Let's pray. Our Father, we... Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for even parts of Your Word that are very difficult to understand. Uh, We thank You for the way that You revealed Yourself to Ezekiel. Thank You for His faithfulness to record this vision. Thank You for giving us understanding of this vision. And we thank You, O Lord, for being a God who is sovereign in all things who cannot be contained, who cannot be tamed, but who works to accomplish His will 
and can never be thwarted. Teach us, O Lord, to live in light of Your promises, whether we're in seasons in which we prosper or whether we're in seasons in which we suffer. Teach us, O Lord, to have a high view of You and to find hope in who You are and what You have promised to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.